On May 6, 2014, Helene Pastor, the 77-year-old heiress to a massive real estate dynasty and the second wealthiest woman in Monaco. Just to get an idea of how wealthy the Pastors are, they're described as being the wealthiest family in the city-state, right after the royal family, the Grimaldis. Helene was leaving Larche Hospital in Nice when a gunman walked up to her minivan in broad daylight and started shooting. Helene was riding in the passenger seat of her black Lancia Voyager. According to a Vanity Fair article written by Mark Seal, Helene had been visiting her son, 47-year-old Gildo. Now, Gildo was a businessman. He was also a huge fan of Formula One and had a passion for racing. Eventually, he co-founded several businesses. One of them was an electric car racing team. He actually partnered with Leonardo DiCaprio in that venture. Gildo was young and healthy. So the stroke, which had left him partially paralyzed, had been devastating to Helene. But he was recovering. And while he did, his mother made the 45-minute trip every day from the luxury apartment where she lived in Monte Carlo to the hospital in Nice. So on May 6th, Helene was following her usual routine. She usually rode in the front seat next to her driver, 64-year-old Mohamed Darwich. He had worked for Helene and her family for a long time. Now, she did this, according to Vanity Fair, because her dog Belle, a white Pyrenean shepherd, took over the whole back seat. When Helene and her driver left the hospital, a man seemed to step out of nowhere. One man was watching and the other man approached the passenger side of the car. He had a sawed-off shotgun in his hand. He shot out the window and kept firing. Several shots hit Helene. Then the man leaned in and shot two more times, hitting Muhammad at point-blank range. Helene's wounds were mostly to the face and neck, while Muhammad was hit in those areas, but he was also hit lower down, in the abdominal area. The gunman jumped into a waiting sedan, and the two suspects fled the scene. After Helene and her driver were shot, their car crashed into a traffic barrier. The whole scene descended into total chaos at that point. As police rushed to the crime scene, where Helene and her driver were collapsed in a pool of blood, the whole town was buzzing. Had this been some kind of a business deal gone wrong? Or could it have been a mob hit? They wanted to know who shot Helene Pastor, a billionaire heiress, in broad daylight in the middle of a super busy town. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. After shooting Helene and Mohammed, the gunman jumped into the vehicle where his associate was waiting and the two suspects fled the scene. Now, because there were doctors hanging around everywhere, and obviously Helene and Mohammed had just been leaving the hospital, they were able to get the best care immediately. Which could be why even though both Helene and Mohammed were shot multiple times, they survived. But sadly, this was only for a short time. Muhammad died of his injuries a few days later, on May 10th. Helene held on for longer. She came out of her coma and started talking to investigators. She promised them that as she felt better, she would give them more information. According to The Guardian, she said, quote, I'm afraid, 
I want to see you again because I have more to tell, end quote. And actually, doctors were telling Helene's family that her condition seemed to be improving. While Helene and Muhammad were fighting for their lives in that hospital, the rumors started flying. Could this have been an angry tenant, someone powerful who the pastor family had done business with and who wanted revenge for something? Or, as Vanity Fair suggested, could it have been some kind of a geopolitical statement from Russia, since Barack Obama had cracked down on some of the Russian oligarchs who were banking in Monaco? Prince Albert issued a statement of sympathy, and the police in Nice started their investigation. Because even though Helene was a citizen of Monaco, the crime happened on French soil. And according to Vanity Fair, a lot of people in Monaco at this point made a comment about the fact that the crime happened in Nice, not Monaco. It seemed to be very important to these people to kind of distance themselves from the crimes and the riffraff. It was very important to law enforcement in Monaco, It's an often cited fact that in Monte Carlo, the area within Monaco that has the casinos and is the most well-known, the ratio of police officers to regular people is about 1 to 70. They have more CCTV cameras per square foot there than anywhere else on Earth. It's supposed to be one of the safest places on the planet. This is a place where billionaires can park their convertible Lambos in public squares, just open and unlocked. And women can wear giant diamonds, pieces of jewelry that would not look out of place in a museum, walking down the streets and not worry about it getting snatched off their bodies. But just because the streets are, for the most part, very safe, doesn't mean that money isn't getting stolen there. It just happens in a much more subtle way. It's an area that is ripe for white-collar crime and red-collar crime. This is why Monaco was once called a sunny place for shady people which is the same phrase, by the way, that a lot of people use when talking about the French Riviera in general, or cities like Los Angeles. But then suddenly, after everyone being told that Helene was recovering, her health started to deteriorate rapidly. Her condition took a turn for the worse, and just after dawn, on May 21st, she died. In Monaco, Helene Pastor was an icon. Her funeral was very private, but it was reported that Prince Albert II attended, and the security there meant that Helene's funeral was almost like a state funeral. She was the only surviving child of Gildo Pastor. Gildo Pastor was a stonemason from Italy. He had humble beginnings, but that changed fast after he arrived in Monaco and got his big break in 1966. That's when Prince Rainier commissioned him to build a lot of massive high-rise buildings. After that, Gildo and his family built a real estate empire. They developed close links to the prince and his family. Gildo, and eventually Helene, owned a tremendous amount of real estate in the most expensive zip code in the world. The elder Gildo Pastor died in 1990. He left his real estate holdings to Helene and her two brothers. Helene's brothers both died at pretty young ages, so that left Helene basically in charge of the entire dynasty by 2014. Now, this is an empire that was worth billions. The value of Helene's fortune has been estimated at around 15 billion euros. That was the most recent estimate I found. But in reality, because of all the real estate, it's really almost incalculable. Helene Pastor had been married and divorced twice. She was married to a Polish bartender and later a dental surgeon in Monaco. She had two children, a daughter, Sylvia, with her first husband, and a son, Gildo, with her second husband. Helene was not a social butterfly. 
She didn't go out to events dripping in diamonds. She kind of kept to herself. Friends said she loved her children. And since her divorces, the other big love of her life was her dogs. She wore all Chanel suits all the time. And she was known for being pretty tough when it came to business. The investigation seemed to go a little quiet, but then everyone in the principality got another shock when police announced they had arrested 25 people in June. And they were questioning a 64-year-old named Voljevic Janovsky. Janovsky was the boyfriend, actually the longtime live-in companion, of Helene's only daughter, 53-year-old Sylvia Pastor. He was also the father of her daughter and a regular on the Monaco social scene. Janovsky was known as a man about town, a philanthropist, and a great citizen. The Guardian described Janovsky as a Cambridge-educated Polish businessman. According to the newspaper, he didn't have a criminal record, and he also had no history of violent behavior. Now, public records in Monaco aren't the same as they are in the United States. Over here, we have the Freedom of Information Act. But in the UK and in Europe in general, the laws are much more focused on privacy than on the right to open records. So it can be difficult and time-consuming to try to figure out someone's backstory, especially if, like Janowski, they've lived all over the world. Janowski came to London when he was around 21 years old, according to Vandy Fair. He was married and divorced a couple of times. Some press reports say that he worked as a bouncer in a casino. By his 30s, he seemed to be listing his occupation as casino manager. Vanity Fair also said that he was known as being a talented visagiste, which means beautician in French, but it's also the word for a person who can recognize faces. In the pre-AI software world, these people would be hired by casinos so they could look out for people and recognize them. Probably big spenders, but especially cheaters. Janowski came to Monaco in the 80s. He helped with the annual World Backgammon Championship. And a few years later, he got his big break. He got a job at the famous Casino de Monte Carlo. This is the casino that you see in the movies Ocean's 12 and several James Bond films. It's literally one of the most glamorous places on Earth. And this job would have given Janowski access to Monte Carlo's high society. At the time of the shootings, Janowski was described, in addition to being a graduate of Cambridge, as a businessman who ran a nanotechnology firm and an oil business. And all of the press reports mentioned his numerous charity connections. In fact, Janowski was a man who everyone in Monaco seemed to love. Everyone except one person, Helene Pastor. Friends and family said that Sylvia had always had a complicated relationship with her mom. Some said Sylvia believed that Helene favored her younger brother Gildo over her. Now, this didn't mean that Helene didn't take care of them very well. Sylvia and Gildo each received an allowance. According to Crime Magazine, it was 500,000 euros, or around $610,000, according to the exchange rate in 2021, per month. It would have been even more in 2014, around $680,000 a month. But either way, that is a shockingly big number. Sylvia didn't seem to be motivated by money. According to media reports, she was kind of a homebody like her mom. She liked quiet nights in rather than hanging out on the Monaco and Monte Carlo social scenes. Sylvia was married to an Italian businessman before she met Janowski. Some press accounts say that she left her husband for Janowski, but other reports say that the marriage was on the rocks and that she was already divorced. 
Whatever the truth of the timing of the origin story, it seemed like they fell in love quickly. They moved in together and settled into family life. They had a daughter together, and even though they never married, they lived together for the next 28 years. Everyone said that Sylvia was madly in love with Janowski and completely trusted him. She would take the allowance money her mom gave to her, write him a check for her half of the household expenses, literally just put it in a joint account and give him the money. And he spent a lot of it over the years. He bought homes, private jets, he went on lavish vacations. And the whole time, Sylvia apparently didn't ask any questions. And unlike his wife, Sylvia, Janowski was a regular on the social scene. In Monaco, he had a huge role in a charity called Monaco Against Autism, whose honorary president is Princess Charlene of Monaco, wife of Prince Albert. In 2010, French President Nicolas Sarkozy honored him for his charity work. He was also the Polish honorary consul to Monaco. This was an unpaid position, but it was very prestigious. And this went on for a long time, so a lot of people say, if he was shady and taking this much money, wouldn't his wife have known? But I've found that sometimes rich people, especially people with family money, can be pretty shockingly naive. They've never had to hustle or develop any street smarts, so they can be kept very insulated from the rest of the world. And as they grow up, this isn't always a good thing, especially when you're being targeted by red-collar and potentially white-collar criminals. Also, if you've never really had to work for a living, for some people, even these huge sums of money sounds strange to say, but they're kind of like monopoly money. They just appear in the bank, some goes out, and because it's always replenished, it's just never that big a deal. It's almost like they live in an unreal world. Once the police investigation started to roll along, things started happening really quickly. The shooting was all over the news. Police were looking for the two suspects who had done this in broad daylight. And it wasn't too hard because there were a lot of witnesses. Police talked to several taxi drivers. One said he remembered picking up two male passengers on the day of the shooting and driving them to a hotel. Then there were two drivers who said they each picked up a man and took him to Larche Hospital that afternoon at around the time of the shooting. Yet another taxi driver said he picked up two fares at the railroad station. He said there were two men in his cab. They had missed their train and got into an argument about it. Eventually, they agreed to give him 500 euros to drive them to Marseille, which is about 100 miles away. Police identified the two men as 24-year-old Samin Syed Ahmed and 31-year-old Alher Hamadi. Both lived in France, and both had criminal records. And these guys were not criminal masterminds. They pretty much bungled every detail. First of all, they didn't use burner phones. They used their real cell phones to talk to each other, so police could easily pull their records. They committed the crime in broad daylight. They didn't wear masks. They didn't cover their faces. And... Finally, what kind of criminals take a taxi to an assassination? Police pulled the men's cell phone records. They were able to establish they had both been near the scene of the crime. Not only that, but police were able to figure out who the two men had been talking to. So as they're arresting these people, the story kept getting bigger and bigger. On June 23rd, police arrested 21 people, bringing the total arrested to 25. But the most shocking part was who they were. Sylvia was arrested, and so was Janowski, who was described in Crime Magazine as, quote, international businessman, philanthropist, and Poland's honorary consul to the Principality of Monaco, end quote. Mm -hmm. 
police had arrested Janowski, a man who everyone in Monaco loved, except for one person, his de facto mother-in-law, Helene. And according to Mark Seal in Vanity Fair, the tension between Helene and her daughter's boyfriend was an open secret in that family. Helene let it be known that she didn't approve of him. She did not hide her feelings. According to friends, Helene didn't seem to like the way that Janowski seemed to be all about appearances. He would put on airs. He would give multiple air kisses that seemed to be over the top, even in a part of the world where giving multiple air kisses is pretty normal. They just didn't gel. He was very over the top. Helene was described as being tough and businesslike. The bottom line was she just wasn't impressed with him. So over the years, Sylvia and Helene fought over Janowski. Sometime in the early 2000s, Sylvia and Janowski made a new friend. They got close to a young fitness trainer, a guy named Pascal Doriak. He became Janowski's personal trainer and Sylvia's masseuse. Pascal got paid about $3,000 a month. It was one of those situations where he had proximity to tremendous wealth, but he wasn't actually in a position to be able to really profit from it, except from afar. But then Janowski kind of started sucking him in. He started buying him expensive gifts and telling him that he was Pascal's future and that if Pascal went along with him, he would help Pascal finance his own gym, where Pascal could be a personal trainer to the stars and socialites of Monaco. In 2012, Sylvia was diagnosed with breast cancer. And this worried Janowski, according to friends. Even though he cared for Sylvia lovingly before, during, and after her surgery, which obviously she survived, he seemed to start asking himself the question at that point, what if she, like some other members of her family, died young? He may have been afraid of this possibility. He may have been afraid of being left with nothing after investing almost 30 years into his relationship with Sylvia. Sylvia had put in her will that her daughters were the sole heirs of her fortune. People asked if this was because she was suspicious of Janowski, but she would later tell investigators that she only did this because Janowski had convinced her that he was independently wealthy, so she didn't think he needed the money. Then, at some point, Janowski told Pascal that he wanted Pascal to get him a gun so that he could solve what he referred to as the problem, which he told police Pascal knew was his mother-in-law, Helene. At first, according to Pascal's lawyers, Pascal seemed to kind of try to put him off and play the comments off like they were kind of a joke. According to Janowski's police statement, he said, quote, I suggested to Pascal Doriak that he help me solve the problem, which was my mother-in-law. I knew that he understood what I wanted to say because he said, sure, no problem, I'll handle it, end quote. So they started following Helene's daily routine, learning the ins and outs of her days. But it wasn't easy because Monica, where she lived, was super secure. Then they found out that she was taking that daily 45-minute drive to visit her son Gildo in Nice. They saw an opportunity. For someone with so much money and power and so many connections, the plan that they came up with was so bumbling and amateurish. It was also extremely overcomplicated and convoluted. What happened was that Janowski asked Pascal if he knew anyone who could take care of his problem. Pascal said he didn't, but he would basically ask around. Then Pascal went to his living girlfriend, told her about it. She went to her brother and asked her brother if he knew anyone. So eventually, Pascal was connected to the two men, Hamadi and Ahmed. Ahmed was the shooter. Hamadi was the lookout who gave the signal. 
In the end, and I've never seen this in all my years of covering true crime, 25 people were arrested. 25. Once you factored in all the go-between people and everyone who talked, it seemed like everyone knew what was going on, except tragically for Helene. Many people who knew Janofsky said they were shocked. They absolutely could not believe that he could have done this. One source, who requested anonymity, told France 24 that Janofsky was, quote, distinguished, always with a smile, end quote. And that same source asked the news channel the question that a lot of people were asking. Janofsky already had plenty of money. Even if he didn't directly inherit Helene's wealth when she died, he was involved in a decades-long relationship with her daughter. Helene was very generous to him. So why would he risk everything by killing her then? That was the question. But it turned out that when investigators looked into Janofsky's accounts, they found out he had been spending money at an insanely fast rate. His businesses were really bogus. Janofsky had spent millions of euros. In the first few months of 2014, he withdrew 8.4 million euros in less than four months. Then shortly before the murders, he withdrew 250,000 euros from an offshore account in Dubai. There were nine transactions between April 22nd and May 4th leading up to the murders. The investigators said this was the money that Janofsky gave to Pascal to fund the killings. So even though Janofsky claimed to be a successful businessman, the truth was that his girlfriend and her mother were his only income, and the companies that he'd founded over the years were not doing well. This included his so-called oil company, the Hudson Oil Corporation, with headquarters in Ontario, Canada. All this oil company seemed to be, according to my research, is a Wikipedia page. They bought a refinery in Poland for almost $40 million, and the refinery turned out to basically be worthless. They didn't fully pay for it either, and the seller got two court orders and was demanding payment. The first installment was due later in 2014. Crime Magazine did a great deep dive into Janofsky's past. In an article written by Marilyn Tomlins, she wrote, quote, Janofsky's life is riddled with affiliations with men whose businesses had a nasty habit of folding shortly after being listed on lightly regulated stock exchanges, end quote. She said Janofsky associated with people who had impressive titles. They would use PhD or MA or put doctor before their name. They would say they went to top universities, things like that. The article read, quote, another of the associates could be, still can be, viewed on LinkedIn in a casual black t-shirt sitting in front of a timber frame cabin. He acted as Janofsky's public relations man. PR, his website, has suddenly gone down, is, however, just one of his expertises, end quote. If you see someone with more than three job titles on their business card, chances are they don't do any of them. You know, in some cases, it can make sense. Someone can be a model-slash-actress or something like that, or writer-slash-editor. But these guys were saying that they were directors of oil and gas businesses-slash-wellness consultants, which just doesn't seem possible. According to Crime Magazine, one of Janowski's associates was someone who participated in pump-and-dump investment fraud. And this person was involved in what The Guardian newspaper called the greatest stock market heist of all time. Now, just to keep it simple, a pump-and-dump scheme is defined by Investopedia as an illegal scheme to boost a stock's price based on false, misleading, or greatly exaggerated statements. You know, really, it's the tactics that are used in Wolf of Wall Street and Boiler Room, and it can be done on a really small or a large scale. 
They talk online about penny stocks. They'll make these outrageous claims about how it's going to be the next Microsoft. They get a lot of people to buy these stocks based on that exaggerated information. Then they and their friends will buy in too. They drive the price up and then they dump out very quickly. Usually the only people who make money are the guys who started it in the first place. So one of Janovsky's associates was kind of doing these things on a larger scale. This alleged associate apparently raised some funds and claimed that they had cash reserves in a Brazilian bank. They said they had gotten $600 million worth of contracts in Argentina for construction and waste management. But they never had any contracts or any money. The whole thing was a fraud. And the article in Crime Magazine was making the point that there were a lot of shady people like this floating around in Janovsky's orbit. Janovsky was arrested. Police held him in custody for several days. Eventually, he was charged with murder. At first, he said he had nothing to do with the murder. But over the next few days, he changed his story multiple times. He said that it was Pascal who had masterminded the whole thing. But what Janovsky didn't know was that Pascal was already talking to police, and he was telling them a completely different story. This time, he admitted that, yes, he had organized the murders. He said that his motive was to be able to access the inheritance money. He said that he brought up the idea to Pascal. Pascal had told him he wouldn't do it himself, but he could get it taken care of through a third party for 200,000 euros. So, Janovsky said he gave Pascal that 200,000. But now he was framing himself as a loving husband. He said the whole thing was really an emotional crime. He said it was absolutely not about money. He painted a picture of Helene, his mother-in-law, as someone who had been emotionally abusive and who had humiliated him and not accepted him in the family. He said that he ordered the hit out of love for his wife, Sylvia. Basically, he said he just loved Sylvia so much he couldn't bear to see her suffer. It was, he said, an act of love. He told the French newspaper Le Monde, quote, The emotional abuse of my wife by her mother has gone on since the day I met Sylvia. You can't imagine the times I've had to pick Sylvia off the floor. The idea of killing Helene grew in me whenever I saw my wife destroyed every night, end quote. Janofsky later totally recanted this confession. He said that he'd misunderstood the investigator's questions, and he said that he'd only said what he said to protect his wife, Sylvia. Now, Sylvia's brother, Gildo, has said through his lawyer that Janovsky's story is ridiculous. It turned out that Janovsky refused a translator, and Gildo said, Janovsky can speak French fluently, so he would have understood everything. He did not need French translation. Which has me wondering, did Janovsky refuse the translator just so he could later claim that he didn't understand? With these types of devious pathological liars, you have to consider every potential possibility. The prosecutor has always said that in their opinion, this was a calculated murder and the motive was money. The prosecutor, Brice Robin, said at a press conference, quote, Janofsky felt rejected by the rest of the Pastor family in general and by Helene Pastor in particular. Janofsky says he wanted to put an end to his wife's suffering at the hands of her mother. But Sylvia Pastor contests this entirely, end quote. Of course, Pascal was telling police a totally different story. He said Janofsky had been planning this murder for a long time and asking him over and over to take care of it. He said that Janofsky had paid him 140,000 euros, not 200,000. 
This was important, he said, because he wanted police to know that he had paid all the money Janowski gave him to the hitman and people involved in the killings. So really, everyone in this case was lying. Police just had to figure out what part they were lying about. For example, Pascal admitted that he helped organize the killings, but he didn't seem to want to admit that he'd skimmed around an extra 50,000 euros off the top and kept it himself before he paid the hitman. Pascal said he felt duped. He told police that he had realized after the fact that Janowski had tricked him. He said Janowski had claimed that his mother-in-law, Helene, was this evil person. He also told police that the shooting of her driver, Mohammed, wasn't just a casualty. Pascal said Janowski told him that he would be willing to give the gunman a 40,000 euro bonus if Mohammed was eliminated as well. He even suggested that the men steal Helene's purse, I guess to make it look like some kind of a robbery. Pascal said something else that was very interesting in getting inside the mind of Janowski and understanding his true motive. He said that Janowski wanted Sylvia's brother Gildo killed too, and that Janowski had called both Helene and Gildo vipers. The motive may have been a little hard to figure out, but the actual process of the killing was not. Police were able to piece together the hit because the killers, as we said, really hadn't bothered to cover their tracks at all. Police believe that Janowski paid Pascal. Pascal paid everyone else. The two men left Marseille on May 6th. They bought tickets under their own names. Apparently, they weren't thinking about the fact that train stations in France have CCTV cameras everywhere. They didn't bother to wear masks or cover their faces. They just wore baseball caps. They talked to each other on their regular cell phones. And they placed calls to the brother of Pascal's girlfriend, who was the middleman. They also called a company in Monte Carlo called Firmus, which is a nanotechnology firm run by Janowski. Ahmed checked into the Azur Riviera Hotel near the railroad station. He took a shower there, and when he was done, he left behind a bottle of shower gel. Police would later say this was kind of a smoking gun in this case. Police tested the bottle. They found both men's DNA on it which would help break the case wide open. They went through Janowski's cell phone records and found that he had called the two men. And they saw the financial trouble. His bank accounts were overdrawn, and the financial picture was way worse than Janowski had admitted. According to Vanity Fair, his bank accounts were overdrawn by around $1.2 million. And he told investigators before he changed that story again that he hoped that once Helene was dead, the inheritance money could cover his debts. So police did take Sylvia in for questioning, but she was only held for a few hours. And after Sylvia was released, a lot of people were asking, how much did Sylvia know and when did she know it? Police were also wondering why Helene's condition had gone downhill so quickly, right after doctors said she was improving. They found out that in fact, doctors had told her family that she was on the mend and that they expected her to recover. Just a few hours later, she was dead. Because of the high-profile nature of the case, Helene had had 24-hour armed guards in her hospital. But she did have one visitor. The night before she died, on Tuesday, May 20th, Sylvia came to her room. Officially, after talking to Sylvia, law enforcement said she was just giving information to help their investigation of her partner. And just to clarify, at the press conference, the prosecutor said explicitly that Sylvia was totally exonerated. Sylvia told investigators that she had not been fighting with her mom about money. In fact, 
She said that in the year before her death, Helene had given her over $10 million to give Chijanovsky. The prosecutor made it clear that they were following the money, but was a little bit cryptic about exactly what happened to those missing millions. He said, quote, right now, suspect financial movements have been identified on Mr. Janovsky's bank accounts, which need to be explained, end quote. There are so many unanswered questions in this case, and with the secrecy surrounding investigations in that part of the world, we may never know everything. What happened to all that money, the tens of millions of dollars that Helene gave Janovsky? And what happened in the months before the killing? Did Helene figure out that the oil refinery wasn't real or that Janovsky had done something else shady with the money? Was she planning to cut him off? Police had to go to 11 countries, and I'm going to list them because it's so incredible. Poland, England, Canada, the United States, Brazil, Switzerland, Luxembourg, Belgium, Italy, Dubai, and the Isle of Man all, according to Crime Magazine, to try to follow this complex money trail and to figure out who Janowski had been hanging out with and where he was spending that money. Janowski's trial started in 2018. Sylvia said in court she had no idea that the man she loved could have been planning something so horrible. She said she is still grieving the loss of her mother and of her companion of over 30 years. She said that after the killings, even though she had always had absolute trust in her husband, she did do some digging, and she found out that some things didn't add up. Once she gave Janowski money to buy an apartment in London for her daughters, she later found out that he had taken the money, bought the apartment, put it in his name, and then gotten a mortgage, presumably to raise even more cash. Another time, he told Sylvia he was buying a yacht for both of them. He gave her the bill. And she said she didn't realize it was a fake bill that he had somehow gotten printed up. He added a million euros to the sale price, according to Sylvia. She paid the money. She has no idea what happened to the money after that. She said in court, quote, I've lost Maman. I have lost Janowski. I have nothing left, end quote. Ahmed and Hamadi also confessed. So Janowski, Pascal, Ahmed, and Hamadi all were charged with first-degree homicide. All received sentences of life in prison. All were sent to the infamous Le Bomet prison in Marseille. Janowski was stripped of all his titles, including the honorary consul role. The foreign ministry released a statement. It read in part, quote, In the present circumstances, there can be no question of trust, end quote. They seemed to want to make it clear that they were not going to do him any favors, that he would not be getting diplomatic immunity, according to France 24. Now he's in prison. A prison, by the way, that has the reputation of being France's toughest. It's a long way from the life of luxury he lived in Monte Carlo. I've looked into press reports over the years. He does seem to have one friend who was speaking out in interviews. A guy named Konstantin Kulikowski, who was described as his interpreter. In a newspaper called Monaco Matin, he described himself in a French-language interview as the only friend of Janowski. He said he would visit Janowski in prison and give him a few euros. He also said that Janowski and Sylvia's daughter would send her dad around 200 euros a month so he could get stuff from the prison store. He said Janowski couldn't afford his lawyer's retainer, so instead he gave them his prized Patek Philippe watch as collateral. He said that Janowski, who once got half a million euros a month minimum, could no longer afford a decent pair of shoes. It's unclear what happened to Sylvia and Gildo's relationship, 
It doesn't seem like they had much contact during the time of the trial. They sat apart. Gildo eventually resettled in New York, where, according to press reports, he was living with his wife and children. He's done a couple of interviews over the years, but I couldn't find even one mention of the killings. So, not surprisingly, it seems as though he's trying to move on with his life. He started more businesses, an online radio station, and invested more in the world of car racing. Sylvia Pastor has pretty much gone radio silent over the years. She seems to be living a very private life in Monaco, and it's not clear what happened to her relationship with Janowski. But according to a report by the French radio station, RTL, she has broken off all contact with him. Red Collar is an Audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Flowers and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?